How are you guys doing today? We're the Molter family. I'm Jordan, this is my wife Jackie, and our son Camden. We have the honor of reading scripture today. So the passage today comes from Matthew 1, 18 through 25. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Thank you so much. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, down through verse 25. We found our way there. Thank you for reading the passage of Scripture to us. Um, let's pause. We're going to look to our Lord together now in prayer. Now, our Father, we're coming into your presence. We've worshipped you in song. We've worshipped you in doing so with our tithes and offerings. Now we worship you in the application of truth to life. You're worthy. Now, Father, you know the needs of the hour. You know the struggles that we face. You know the burdens on minds and hearts, shoulders when we arrived here to worship. I praise you and we thank you, Father, for who you are, the sovereign one who has everything under control. You know the needs. And you meet the ultimate need when you send Jesus Christ into this world to die for our sins. And for this we give you all praise. So, Father, whether it be at the global level, such as the events unfolding in the Middle East, or the personal level, where we're grappling with the challenges of daily living here. You are God, and you are worthy of praise. So these moments ahead are important. We're asking now that you would warm these hearts, that you would engage these minds, that you would shape these wills. As again, our Father, we've come here to see Jesus and him only, and we're praying these things again now. In Jesus' name, amen. As you look at the screen, what you're going to see is a map of Israel. And what we want to do now is to try to figure out just where on earth is Nazareth. Because the story that's unfolding in this passage of Scripture has to do with dreams that were offered to, to Joseph, 
in what he was doing in the life of Mary. And so you can see at the very tip where that red arrow begins, that is, that is Nazareth up there. It's in the region of the Galilean region, if you will. And what we'll see over the course of these coming days as we make our way towards the Christmas Eve Sunday next week where John will speak in the morning services and I'll speak at the candlelight services later in the day is that the trek that would take place would be such that, that Joseph and Mary will make a move onwards towards Bethlehem, not far from Jerusalem, you'll notice, at the southern tip of what's occurring here on the map. But if we focus our attention on Nazareth at this point, you might want to see what comes next on the screen. Because what comes next on the screen, if we were taking a tour of Nazareth at this moment, is that we would see this very large building. It's known as the Church of the Annunciation. Stands out when you're walking in the streets of Nazareth. And I, I remember being just very focused upon that, that it's so easy to overlook that there is a church positioned right next to it known as St. Joseph's Church. It's almost as if uh, Joseph's there in the shadows, much like, much like the story of Christ's birth, you see. But what we want to do in some ways is to ponder the way in which God is at work in Joseph's life this morning, as well, of course, as Mary, to bring him out of the shadows and to see what God is doing in his life simultaneously for how, with how God is working in Mary's life. Which leads us to Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, down to verse 25, where what I'm going to want to do with you in these moments together is to extract from these verses three significant observations that I think will have direct bearing upon the way in which we can better understand this Christmas story. Now, the first comes out of verse 18 and verse 19. And we'll put it this way, that as you and I, as we reflect upon Jesus Christ as our Emmanuel, because that, in fact, is the theme of this Advent series, I want to begin by noting here what I'm going to describe as the disruptions that our Lord produces. You see it in 18 and 19. So let me begin reading on verse 18 because here we find these words. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. On her husband Joseph, being a just man, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now notice how this begins. It begins with the word, uh, the birth. Birth comes from the same Greek root as genealogy, which you and I see in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so we are beginning to explore that there is something distinctive 
There is something unique about this one, Joseph, as it relates to this, this, this story. Because if you allow for your eyes to go down, if you will, to verse 16, as well as 17 in this first chapter, Jacob, the father of Joseph. But now notice the wording. The husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who's called Christ. If you look carefully at the genealogy and the various verses all throughout these opening verses, what you'll find is that such and such is the father of so-and-so. But when you reach the point of looking carefully at the role of Joseph, he is not referred to as the father of Jesus. What he is referred to as the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. What is occurring now is that God is setting you and setting me up for uh, an understanding that we are going to be addressing a, a virgin birth. That there are two natures in this one person that we're exploring and examining together. The birth, the genealogy of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Notice what begins to unfold here. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, the word betrothed is an interesting word. It was more than an engagement. And it normally accompanied uh, the groom's payment of at least the bride's price. Betrothal usually lasted roughly a year. The bride and groom were officially pledged to each other, but had not yet consummated their relationship. And so, for even a betrothal to take place, it was really stage one in the overall marriage process. There would be two witnesses on hand, mutual consent and the bridegroom's, the groom's declaration. It's his intent to marry the young lady. And this was established as, as typical Jewish betrothal. So this stands out. It's more than an engagement. There were three steps in the relational process. Betrothal was the first step. The second step would be the actual marriage ceremony in Jewish circles, which could very well last upwards to a week in length. And people from the various villages would gather together, so many of them related to one another, and to honor the couple. The third stage was consummation. Now, what we find here in many ways is a picture of salvation beginning to unfold. Commitment to one another, 
And after that, there is this ceremony that takes place and ultimately the consummation of. Now, we find that Mary and Joseph are in what we might call step one, betrothal. In many cases in the Middle East, in fact, betrothed ones barely knew each other. Uh, so much were in the realm of arranged marriages. And they would oftentimes not see much of each other at all during the course of the betrothal period. Stands out all the more. And so when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So what in role now does Joseph have in this? In verse 19, her husband Joseph, being a just man, or in some translations, a righteous man, he's protective now. He cares about her. Being unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But God is going to have to break in here, and the timing is extraordinary. Because what you and I are going to find is that Joseph is going to provide legal status to Jesus Christ as being son of David, while Mary would provide biological status as being son of David. And so now both the legal as well as the biological come together in the very same way that we have both humanity and divinity coming together, where Mary is providing that sense of humanity, where Jesus was 100% man, but the Holy Spirit is providing the divinity, he's 100% divine, two natures in one person, combined with the legal and the biological, this is absolutely brilliant what God is doing at this point as he is interrupting the genealogical uh, statements of verses 1 through 17. And that's why when you and I read Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, is called Christ. Why God has phrased it just the way that he has. This stands out. This begins to make sense. The purpose of it all and how God wants to work for his glory, for our good. Years ago, I came across a news article and I uh, made note of it. Where on March 5th of uh, 1994, Deputy Sheriff Lloyd Prescott was teaching a class for police officers in the Salt Lake City Library. The news clip reads that as he stepped into the hallway, he noticed a gunman herding 18 hostages into the next room. With a flash of insight, Prescott, dressed in street clothes, joined the group as the 19th hostage. Follow them into the room, shut the door. 
When the gunmen announced the order in which the hostages were to be executed, Prescott identified himself as a police officer. There was a scuffle that followed. Prescott, in self-defense, fairly shot the armed man, and the hostages were released unharmed. I wrote note to Gary. Gary. God dressed himself in street clothes, so to speak. Entered our world, joining us who are held hostage to sin. On the cross, Jesus defeated Satan and set us free from the penalty of sin. What God has done through the second member of the Trinity that was established in eternity past was to develop a strategic plan where Joseph would provide legal status, Mary would provide the biological status, the Holy Spirit is offering divinity, Mary is offering humanity, we have two natures in one person. The purpose is not merely to be a good teacher, though he is. The purpose is not to be a good example, though he is. If that was all, then we've got an over-engineered product on our hands. No, the purpose was, because he has two natures, human and divine, only God could pay the penalty for sin. Only a man should pay the penalty for sin. Thus, the could and the should merge together just as legal and biological, just as humanity and divinity. Do you see the brilliance of convergence that is occurring in this particular moment in time? And how the angel is guiding and directing the thought processes of Joseph to be able to mix and match and to find a way to make sense out of this extraordinary uh, strategy that God has unfolding in this little place in Galilee. Now, if you and I are spending any time in Nazareth, I remember walking up to the church of St. Joseph appears on the screen. And when you and I look at the Church of St. Joseph, um, as I mentioned a few moments ago, it's in the shadows of the Church of Annunciation. The Church of Annunciation is, uh, is arguably the largest Protestant church in the Middle East. <coughs> this church, on the other hand, can easily be overlooked as people walk back and forth, pass by. Nazareth is a highly Arab town today. But as people venture into this town, this church, what you will find is that the tour guide is very quick to tell you that just below this church, in a cave below, is the workshop of Joseph. Now one can't prove that at this point. But it makes sense for people to pause and give added thought to how God was using this man to provide legal status 
to further establish, if you will, the strategy that God has unfolded for you and for me to consider in these verses together. Now what God has done then is to disrupt the status quo. God has disrupted Joseph's life. God has obviously disrupted Mary's life. Politically, he will disrupt Herod's life. Internationally, he will interrupt the wise men's life. What I'm arguing for is that when God wants to do a significant work, disruption is inevitable. When you put faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord and chose no longer to live for self but rather to live for Christ, it creates a sense of disruptions, new ways of relating to people around you, that what you once did you no longer do, and what you do is not something you once considered doing. You have new pursuits, you develop new relationships, And with this tension between the old and the new, disruptions occur in life. What we want to argue then is that in Advent, verses 18 and 19 speak to you, speak to me about the disruptive aspect of salvation. God gets a hold of the person who has various addictions. God gets a hold of the person who has, who has struggled in so many ways that are, that are overlooked by the average individual around him, around her. And it's as if God is saying, enough is enough is enough. I want to break into your life. I want to do something new with you. I want to do something different with you. I want something special to come out of this disruption for you for God's glory. Are you open to that? God wants to disrupt your life and do it in a way that's meaningful, purposeful, and beneficial, not just to us, but to one and all. That's what comes out of verse 18 and verse 19, the disruptions our Lord produces. But you make your way into verse 20 and 21 Because second of all, what I want you to notice with me is the salvation that our Lord secures. The salvation that our Lord secures. Because in verse 20 now, as he considered these things and he was pondering divorce, once again, and you see this so often when you're dealing with subjects pertaining to Jesus Christ, another behold. It's meant to grip your attention. It's a visual word communicated in a verbal manner. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Now, as far as I can determine, there's roughly about six dreams in the New Testament that pertain to all of which pertain to Jesus Christ. And so, as this begins to narrow its focus, he says in this dream, Joseph. Don't overlook what comes next. The son of David. Isn't that what the genealogy was all about? To be able to make an argument that we are working through the line of Abraham, through the line of David, narrowing it until we get to the one who will become king of kings and lord of lords. You're already anticipating how this, Beth, this, this story that the angel is sharing 
in Nazareth. It's going to get worked out at the very end of the book of Matthew when Pilate's going to make absolutely certain that over Jesus' forehead will be the sign that reads, King of the Jews. And so from beginning to end, we understand the royal emphasis that Matthew is placing upon Jesus as they're tracing this through the line of David into the situation where Joseph, who will give legal royal status to Jesus Christ, is being told and informed by the angel, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. You pause at that point. You think about the significance of what God's doing. And he's using an angel to make this happen. And when I was studying this week, I usually begin my study of a passage on late Thursday and end late Saturday night. What I was pondering was, well, I wonder how, wonder how the evil one, who's a fallen angel, was pondering the way in which all his colleagues are in a cosmic angelic involvement, finding ways to emphasize that the one who is to be born in Bethlehem would go to die on Calvary and defeat what the fallen angel had set forth to do. What's he thinking as he sees this cosmic angelic involvement? As his plans are beginning to go awry, as God's sovereign purposes are all coming together, Joseph, son of David, legal status combined with biological status, two natures, one person. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife. And now for added emphasis here, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Humanity and divinity. She will bear a son. Notice how now, because he is given the responsibility of providing legal status, the angel tells him, you be the one to make the statement regarding the naming of the child. You shall name, you shall call his name Jesus. But the angel is actually telling him what the name is going to be. God's already got this arranged. And why is it so important that the name be Jesus? Because what comes next, in many ways, is the entire purpose statement, the entire mission statement of the Christmas season. Because how does it read? For he will save his people from their sins. Not from a, a bad financial decision. Not from a bad health situation. But something of ultimate significance. He'll go to that cross to save his people from their sins. And all of this is getting laid out in the Christmas story. And that's why we've got to be able to draw out the purpose statement, even in the Advent season, of how Bethlehem unites, so to speak, with Jerusalem, with 
Calvary and how birth, death, resurrection are linked together in this purpose statement that's delivered to you and delivered to me. It's the purpose to save a Japanese seashore village a hundred years ago. An earthquake startled the villagers one autumn evening. But they're accustomed to earthquakes, and so they went about their normal activities. But above the village, on a high plain, stood an old farmer who was watching from his house. The one describes it this way. He looked at the sea. The water appeared dark, acted strangely, moving against the wind, running away from the land. The old man knew what to do. He knew what it all meant. His one thought was to save the people. So he called to his grandson, bring me a torch. Hurry. In the fields behind him lay his great crop of rice, piled in stacks ready for the market, worth a lot. The old man hurried out with his torch, and in a moment the dry stalks were blazing. And then the big bell peeled from, uh, from below, fire back from the beach, away from that strange sea, up the steeps, on side of the cliff, the people came. They were coming, attempting to save the crops of the rich neighbor. Little did they know that the rich neighbor was coming to save them. He's mad, they said. As they reached the plain, the elderly man shouted back at the top of his voice, Look! At the edge of the horizon, they saw a long, lean, dim line. A line, a line that thickened as they gazed. And the line was the sea. It was rising like a high wall. It was coming more swiftly than one can imagine. And then shock, heavier than thunder, the great swell struck the shore with a weight that sent a shudder through the hills, tore their homes to matchsticks. It drew back, roaring, struck again, back, again, back, again, until finally it ebbed and returned to its place. And the people were shaken. No word was spoken. And then the voice of the elderly man was heard saying gently, this is why I set fire to the rice. He stood among them, almost as poor as the rest of them. His wealth was gone, but he had saved lives by his sacrifice. She will bear a son. You should call his name Jesus, which means Yahweh saves. For, and here is your purpose statement, your mission statement. 
He will save his people from their sins. And this is why you need 100% humanity, 100% divinity, two natures, one person, and one person so that you've got the perfect sacrifice. And it's all laid out in that one verse. What do you make of that? You've noticed with me the disruptions our Lord produces in 18 and 19. And second of all, the salvation that our Lord secures in 20 and 21. You bring it home now with thirdly, the promise that our Lord fulfills. It's in 22 through 25. And the angel is speaking. And now he's going to reference what was covered two weeks ago. As we began our Emmanuel series with Isaiah chapter 7. When he says all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. So eight centuries prior, God had already made this known to humanity. Behold, in verse 23, the virgin, the Hebrew word virgin's alma. The virgin shall conceive, bear a son. You can imagine how Matthew is processing. He, he would know his Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14 is beginning to leap out. Eight centuries prior, it's now in a very timely way. Two natures in one person, legal, biological, 100% man, 100% God. It's all coming together. Behold, the virgin shall conceive, bear a son. Mark this. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which the angel would go on to say means God with us. Don't you love what Joseph does next? So good. So good. Don't overlook it. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. Is there anything you've been holding back on doing that God has commanded you to do? Now's the time to do it. And so out of all this, Despite all the challenges around him, he know the knows the truth given to him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And now giving legal status, he provides the legal, Mary provides the biological. He called his name Jesus. So overwhelmed with that, that prophecy of eight centuries prior. Behold, the virgin shall conceive, bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which of course means God with us. You might recall the story. Dietrich von Heffer, who left his pastorate in London in 1935, returned to Germany as the head of the Confessing Church graduate school there. When he came to Germany, he was soon imprisoned under the Nazi regime. 
and conditions in the prison were horrible. Inmates were not allowed or able to, to speak to one another. But they had a code for communication. Their code signifying, quote, God with us, unquote, was three taps on the wall. On April 9th of 1945, under Hitler's regime, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was escorted to the gallows for hanging. This man who had witnessed for the Lord, this man who had lived for the Lord, this man who had had such impact upon the prison body that when he was escorted out, the entire prison body responded with a thunderous three taps in rapid succession, communicating to Bonhoeffer as well as to one another, God is with us. This morning, if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have this overwhelming knowledge and certainty. God is with you. It's because Jesus died for you. Let's stand together. Our Father, we praise you, we thank you for this extraordinary, brilliant, beyond comprehension strategy that you had developed in eternity past. Two natures in one person, a legal and a biological, all the convergence necessary so that what would eventually take place in Bethlehem would find fulfillment in what would take place on the cross where King of the Jews would be placed over his head. And so, Father, we thank you for what is described here. Remind each and every one in today's services and for those watching online, Emmanuel does not mean he came against us came to be with us. We need to put our faith and trust exclusively in him and him alone. I pray that that's the case for each and every one. And we'll give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.